Hello and welcome, welcome back to All Things Urticaria. I'm Marcus, I'm here at the UCARE at Charité in Berlin. UCARE, maybe this is the first episode you catch. We are Urticaria Centers of Reference and Excellence, and we are now 155 centers in many, many, many countries of the world. And one thing we do is we educate each other and others on urticaria, all things urticaria. And today I am super happy to have Sherazade with me. Hola, que tal? Hola, que tal, Marcos? Hi, how are you? Sherazade, um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your fascination with urticaria, with mast cells? Uh, what do you do and why? Well, that's a tough question to, to start with, but um, I did my PhD in allergies. So I uh, specialized in biomarkers in also mast cells in the uh, field of IgE mediated uh, classical allergies, what we think of pollen allergy, uh, peanut allergy, these yeah. type of diseases. And I uh, studied the biomarkers and the clinical features there. And then uh, I met you in a conference, actually. Yeah. And then I thought, hey, what is about these disease where also mast cells are involved, but there is not clear biomarkers, as I know, in allergies. Yeah. And then I thought, hey, maybe, uh, you know, I can bring in a little bit of knowledge about this and, yeah, explore this field. And it will be uh, no secret to most of you that Sherazada's favorite molecule is the soluble IgE receptor. And uh, listen, I didn't know much about this before Sherazada <laughs> came to join us, but I, uh, she got me fascinated. You know, first of all, the fact that a receptor that is so important in allergy and also chronic spontaneous uticaria, uh, is not just bound to mast cells and basophils, but yeah, free-floating in the blood. And we can look at it, we can measure it, we can look for links with other clinical markers. Well, and this is what Sherazada brought to the team. And um, she was not at all taken back by the fact that chronic spontaneous urticaria is not an allergy. In fact, she said, look, if uh, it is really true what you say, that this is a mast cell-driven disease, that uh, IgE plays a role, that anti-IgE works, then let's figure out what this soluble receptor can teach us about urticaria. Right, because it didn't make sense to me. <laughs> like when you, you gave this speech, you gave this presentation talking about how urticaria is not an allergy, but yeah. there's mast cells, there's IgE, the anti-IgE yeah. treatment works. And I was, hey, but this has to... This has to do with soluble receptors, so with my favorite protein. Well, 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 Sherazade, whenever we talk, it seems to me that everything has something to do with a soluble IgE receptor. Of course. <laughs> um, which is fine, which is cool, but what, you, you've convinced me that this is important. Um, what, give our listeners a little bit more of an idea of what we can learn by looking at soluble IgE receptor in chronic spontaneous urticaria. Right. So the way I saw it first was it's it's a win-win situation. Either we found soluble FC epsilon, it's a biomarker for chronic spontaneous urticaria, or we find that that is not involved and therefore there is a different mechanism triggering the disease, right? So um, in classical allergies, what I found or what I helped discover a little bit was that this receptor, the FC epsilon R1, the high affinity IgE receptor, um, is shedded, released, somehow there is a mechanism that becomes 
soluble and then flies into the circulation, into the tissue, and there it binds to IgE, so it's still functional. That's the good point of this whole receptor, sure. that it's still functional. It can somehow interfere in this signaling cascade, sure. buffer somehow these IgE levels, and therefore minimize symptoms, because that's what we see the symptoms, but there's a lot of steps happening beforehand. So I thought, okay, let's look at these new disease for me, current spontaneous urticaria. If indeed this IgE is doing something on my cells, we should see it as a release of the soluble receptor. And that you saw, but let's not jump too far ahead. Um, how do you measure this? Right, so this has actually been uh, developed by a colleague um, in Boston, and she developed an ELISA, which is a very, very widely used common technique to detect molecules, uh, biomarkers in every field, not, not only in allergies, but in every field. And she developed it uh, by using a chimeric uh, version of this alpha cool. chain. And then uh, now it's commercially available. Oh, cool. So everyone can do this at home. Um, yeah. Reproducing what you did and building on it. That's great. And can we think of it as the body's own omalizumab? You say that it's uh, it, it still binds IgE once it's released into the circulation. Is that a way to look at it? Well, that's it's been called like that mm. by, by many people. So uh, it seems to be it's an endogenous omalizumab. However, I bet it's a bit more complex than that. Um, just because on the endogenous function of it, like why do we have this soluble receptor? Why is it triggered? Why is it increased in allergies? We don't know. There is no knowledge about all the diseases that mm. are not IgE mediated. Mm. We don't know if in infection we have an increase of alpha chain, which is in helminth infection, for example, IgE levels are increasing like very, very high. We don't know the alpha chain levels there. Maybe it is uh, an old omalizumab that we developed somehow to protect our own body Ooh. from our own IgE and not to fire these uh, hyper-responsive uh, mediators. But yeah, I'm sorry to say that we still don't know if we, if we can function as an endogenous omalizumab. Look, that's that's <laughs> what, we, what we have you for. That's what you will figure out and are um, very actively in the process of. Um, without spoiling too much what will be published very soon, um, please people go read Sherazada's paper when it comes out. Tell us a little bit about what we can see when we look at soluble IgE in the blood of our patients. Right, so first of all, um, I've always measured this molecule, this biomarker in blood. Mm. We don't know if this is different when we look at the tissue. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly important when we talk about urticaria, world symptoms are in the skin. And when I compare it to other allergies where we have systemic symptoms, there might be a difference between those patients. So this is the first disclaimer, let's say, or the first uh, uh, thing that I need to clarify. But in chronic spontaneous uh, urticaria patients, we wanted to look at it as a predictor of response okay. because if we think these patients are uh, suffering symptoms due to IgE therefore alpha chain should be increased that's what we see in allergies okay and in those patients omalizumab should work does it it does okay it does unfortunately of course there are many more questions than answers like every time in science when we have a paper out um, there are many many questions and 
we need to explore it in a more detailed population, in a, in a better uh, defined cohort where we control for any other allergies, we, co we control for any other parameters that now we know can affect alpha chain levels that sure. we didn't know before. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll explore further into that. Yeah, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Do we know? So my guess is, you know, in order for soluble IgE to end up in the circulation, cells need to let go yeah. uh, from the cell-bound uh, population of this receptor that they have. So that makes mast cell baselefills primary targets. How do they do that? Right, so this is one of the first questions we wanted to address um, during my, my, my PhD work. So we looked at different cell types, so uh, a, a type of mast cells uh, derived from mice. Uh, we also looked at uh, monocytes uh, that were generated to differentiate into dendritic cells, and they all can release alpha chain as, uh, as long as they express the receptor. So uh, I mentioned alpha chain maybe also uh, to explain this because it's, it's formed by the alpha subunit of the receptor. Okay. So that's why sometimes I call it alpha chain. You know, we, we go back, uh, we're back. Um, so uh, every cell that expresses the receptor, it's a potential source of the soluble receptor. Mm. Now, it is, not every cell behaves the same and not every cell uh, responds to the same stimulation factors or to the same stressors, let's say. So there might be a difference if you have an enriched population of basophils, maybe there, you know, it won't be a one-to-one -one ratio of alpha chain release mm -hmm. as compared to maybe mast cells. Would it matter how these cells are activated for the Definitely. IT? Okay. Definitely. This is one of the first things we uh, checked. It needs to be IgE-specific activation of, um, of the cell. Um, it, there needs to be a certain step, so SAR kinase, um, phosphorylation, endolysosomal trafficking. There needs to be a number of steps that are more or less restringent, let's say, to the release of this molecule. Mm -hmm. ah, very cool. So, um, Martin our colleague uh, and I, we just recorded uh, an episode on all things urticaria on biomarkers. And how can we provide targeted treatment, individualized, personalized uh, treatment to our patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria? And we came to fantasizing a little bit that okay. it should be possible eventually to uh, ask patients questions and based on the answers and a couple of blood tests, that's how Martin put it. A couple of blood tests would then tell us, for you, this is the best treatment. Does soluble IgE receptor have that potential? Can it grow to become one of those predictive biomarkers? I do. I think. I, th I think. I think it can. I think there are still things to clean out of the mess of the IgE network because it is definitely messy when, when you look at IgE. In classical allergies, so you know the, uh, the pathomechanisms is IgE sensitization, IgE activation, and still when you measure specific IgE levels, it's not a clear picture. You, you, do, you don't have a good correlation between IgE levels and clinical symptoms. You do have uh, additional tests, skin prick testing or a food challenge, which are a little bit more accurate, but there's still a mess. This IgE network is a mess, probably because there's a lot of soluble factors happening there, like alpha I knew you would say. <laughs> But uh, so I really think that in order to clean out this, all the dirt or all the things, all the factors that interfere 
with the IgE, AlphaChain can be a, a good player because it is still functional in circulation. It still binds, uh, it interferes with IgE detection tests. Maybe there yeah. you find this mismatch yeah. correlation. So yeah, why not? And may I say not only in blood, maybe. Maybe, you know, if you look at different tissues, different locations, you have different ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask you that maybe last question you have time for on soluble IgE receptor. You said, let's look at the skin levels right. of this uh, molecule. Are you going to do that? Uh... <laughs> Very gently. <laughs> Trying to, of course, when we talk about biomarkers, we talk about uh, non-invasive or as non-invasive uh, methods as possible. Uh, blood taking, it's still somehow invasive, but, but you know, it's commonly used and now we, we, we are all um, accustomed to, to uh, measuring things in blood. And very, very successfully, I would say. But you know, when we when we looked at the symptoms and they are restricted to a organ or to one specific location, you might think that the picture might be different there yeah, sure. as compared to blood. Yeah, but how are you going to get right. the skin juice if you want? No, the right. the fluid in the skin where you would see the soluble. So we have a couple of projects uh, running in the lab where we are trying to develop uh, non-invasive methods of sucking out this liquid that is right, right below your skin when you can't really see, but. You know, your skin is hydrated, it's fluffy, yep. it's plumping. So there is some liquid in there that uh, where the cells are swimming, more or less, because they're not free swimming, but they're embedded in a kind of uh, liquidy gelatin uh, jam, let's say. And yeah, we are working so on different techniques. What's the magic here? Um, you know, in, in, back in the days, we used to do skin microdialysis. Right. Uh, um, what, what's the... So the idea, yeah, the idea is to um, put in like a patch yeah. that contains a microchip, okay. like we think of a microchip, like a SIM card, okay, and a size, and that is covered by hollow microneedles, which are like super super tiny. Less less, it, it's not even like like a pinch. It's not like a needle, like a sewing needle, um, and they're hollow, so they have a vacuum system attached to it. Okay. So when you press it on the skin and you suck it out. You get a very, very tiny amount. It's something like two microliters, five microliters. It's something you don't even feel. You don't miss it at all. Okay. And that comes with a challenge. Uh, of course, has an advantage. That is, you get the right specific spot where your symptoms are. But that comes with a challenge. You have very limited amount of volume of, of tissue or, or liquid to work with. Yeah. And there you have to get very good at detecting which, what you want to detect. You are. <laughs> Do you know if it's possible to get sodium lysosomal one in that hollow microneedle derived interstitial skin fluid? Yeah, we're working on it. Okay. Uh, we can detect, um, so in skin microdialysis for sure, yeah. this is uh, because of the volume we, we obtain, it's much larger. And I can detect alpha chain there, no problem whatsoever. With the um, hollow microneedles in the ELISA that we have currently, mm -hmm. it's a bit tricky, but we are, you know, looking at other options of uh, detecting alpha chain. Perfect. Well, my fingers are crossed. I know you'll do it. Um, the best of luck and success to you. And maybe uh, if you out there are interested in uh, looking at skin fluid that comes in tiny amounts, but uh, can be very instructive, Sherazade is your 
primary contact and will, I'm sure, help with your ideas. Sherazada, this went by like nothing, but I'm not going to let you go without mm -hmm. talking about one thing, and I'm happy that you allowed me to touch on this. Um, you are super prolific um, as a researcher and um, have become a mast cell fan or uh, are very, very familiar with mast cell driven diseases by now. But you also have uh, a talent that not many of us have um, working in science and research and uh, the medical professions. And that is communicating, communicating not just um, with other scientists, that mm -hmm. also, yes, of course, uh, but also translating what you do in the lab for people who don't work in a lab. And so I wonder if you could share a little bit with our listeners what you do. I know you're on Twitch. I know you from TikTok. I know you from Twitter. Um, you know, you're so broad and uh, I, I really admire the way that uh, you put really difficult, um, difficult to understand uh, and complex questions into a way that all people can understand. Um, tell us a little bit about this. Where does this fascination come from? Right. So this came out of nowhere, to be honest. So uh, I, I know that uh, many people changed hobbies during the pandemic. It was a difficult time for everybody. And and we all transitioned somehow. Uh, we are all different uh, from 2019 or 2020. Um, so what I did is that I found that it was it was hard to watch my friends and inner circle suffer from misinformation from COVID. It was really hard to see my parents and, and f friends and family asking, what is COVID triggered by 5G? Uh, I don't know. It, it, it was, it, I really was struggling with that. I, I really couldn't watch or I couldn't follow much of the news because I was very sad. And then I received many questions uh, by my uh, close people right, um, about COVID. And then I thought, it cannot be, it cannot be that we are so far from society, that we have this knowledge that is so valuable and and that, and that they don't know because they're not different. I mean, they, you know, people who are not uh, science background trained, um, they're not different than me. They're not less intelligent than me. They're not, it's just me. They just never had anybody telling them whatever a PCR is or a virus is. And so I started slowly, uh, on Twitter, doing short videos uh, together with a Spanish comedian who was uh, doing something like that. And then um, I was shocked. I was really shocked how people received that because it was very, they were very appreciative of my time and my knowledge and sharing that. And then I was hooked. I was hooked. Uh, I started in Twitter and then I, I found Twitch, which I didn't know about. Which, uh, it was a video game platform back then, but now never again it's it's all kinds of things and yeah i really enjoy um it's it's never easy i have to say it's never easy sure. but it always brings me something better and, and people can tell that you have so much fun doing it you know <laughs> i got hooked to you being on watching you and uh, look i think it's just a a, a really uh, it's a gift that you have and uh, being able to do that. And uh, thank you for taking the time to do that. I know a lot of what you do is in Spanish. I know that you also have some uh, English content out there. So people, um, if you haven't uh, picked up on Sherazada's multiple channels, please do so. We will put them in the show notes uh, so that you can like and follow her. And I do hope um, 
that your broad approach to explaining science and to really difficult things in really easy words will also extend to explaining diseases where I see a huge, huge need, unmet need, uh, for patients to learn from people who actually know something about the disease, how this disease works, how the treatment works, what to expect, um, information out there. Yes, there's a lot, but not a lot of good information. So thank you very much for, for doing that. Um, hope you can uh, shift some of your attention to the muscle-driven diseases. I know you've already touched on this a little bit, but uh, that would be great. Uh, Sherazana, my last question often is if uh, you had a million dollars and then people say, what well, I can do nothing with a million dollars. All right, let's make it five million dollars. Okay. Um, but you had to spend it on either research mm -hmm. or communicating about research. That's a tough one. You can split. You can split it up 60, 40, 70, 30. What, what, what would you do? Uh, that's a tough one. You know, we, we, we say in Spanish, um, la ciencia no se hace sola. It's like science cannot be done alone, like or by yeah. itself. And so you need money to do research. Yeah. Like it cannot be done without support uh, and without financing and without hands. But also, um, we also say, la ciencia que no se cuenta. No cuenta. So the science that you don't tell about, it doesn't count. So it is very tough. I would definitely split it. Um, and I would probably do 60 to research, 40 to communication, but get a good communicator so that it makes it work. Yeah. Okay, very good. What a diplomatic answer. Well, look, I, I, I'll i try to find those five million somewhere for you, but I uh, hope you continue until then with what you're doing. The best of luck and success. Thank you very much for joining us. Muchisimas gracias. Um, and people out there, look, um, uh, this was fascinating for me. I hope it was fascinating for you as well. If you want to learn more about what Sherazad is working on, go check the show notes, go find out. If you want to have one of our previous um, uh, episodes explained or extended on, do let us know. We can do a sequel. And if you have a completely new idea for something that we should touch on here in All Things Urticaria, send them my way. I'm sure we can make it happen. That's all the time we have for now, folks. Thank you for joining us and all the best until we hear each other again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.